how important is it to know everything? Yeah, you're never going to know. That's a shit question. Sorry. No, <laughs> <laughs> Do you want me to we answer? We might keep it. We no, might keep, keep it going. In. Keep going. Yeah, keep yeah. going. You're listening to the Occupational Philosophers with Simon Banks and John Rice. Welcome to another episode of the Occupational Philosophers. But before we go any further, John, what's caught your curious eye this week? What has caught my curious eye, Simon, has been Angela Merkel in Germany. She's stepping down after something like 16 years. And I was just reading the headline that caught my eye was the fact that her double now is is also stepping down. I thought, oh, wow, yeah, of course. World leader must have a double to you know attend events in case there's some trouble or something like that, in case someone tries to do harm to them. But no, it wasn't that kind of double. It was the person who makes money out of opening supermarkets as Angela Merkel. That <laughs> <So laughs> goes around to doing corporate dues just dressed as Angela Merkel, not saying anything, but just sort of being seen as Angela Merkel. But yeah, my first thought is that was the person who had to uh, stand in in case someone tried to assassinate them or something like that. (laughs) But it was something more mundane. But yeah, she's retiring at the same time, which I thought was quite nice. But they've never met. And I thought (laughs) thought there's a moment for them to turn up to each other's retirement party. (laughs) And this is the thing in the UK, they call them looky-likeys, don't they? Like looky-likey. Yeah, so... So I think the headline was actually so saying body double or something like that is a bit a bit of a mislead, really. It is. You're right. It's a lookalike, isn't it? Rather than that. So I then had me curious as to who I might want to be a sort of lookalike for or a body double for if it was a world leader. I was thinking, well, who's really nice and less likely to run into any trouble? So. You would be though. Your looky likey is um, Begbie from uh, Train Spotting, isn't it? Like- yeah, he's not. He's not a world leader though, is he, Robert Carlyle? <laughs> but that's him, Robert Carlyle. You're like <laughs> you're like Begbie's uh, doppelganger. So, um, uh, Mr. Carlyle, if you're uh, listening, there's yeah. someone who can get shot on your behalf here. I'm, I'm ready to uh, cut ribbons on supermarkets anytime. What about you, Simon? I'm trying to think who you might be a body double for. Sorry, a lookalike for, not a body. Uh, well, let's stop it there. So the usual one would be uh, Brad Pitt. So, um, but you know, <laughs> so I just, I'm, I'm sick of that comparison. So, look, what's caught my eye though this week, John? There is a famous Spanish author, and her name is Carmen Mola, but I might have it wrong with the Spanish explanation or pronunciation, M-O-L-A, but she was up, she's won a huge big award this week, and it's been revealed that she is not a female author, she's a fictional author made up by three other authors, and they haven't been saying, but she's been uh, revealed that, yeah, she's written all these highly, or they've written these highly successful novels in her name and they've now revealed themselves this week at oh, so this is like literary you award a, so because you sometimes have that with authors having a, a nom de plume or whatever so they might adopt a writing name to almost give themselves some cover or allow them to put material out but this is three people have put material out as one person fictional person yeah, in secret just, yeah ah, secret and oh, um cool. let me see the uh where am i looking at it okay penguin house Penguin Random House, the publisher, described Mola as crime literature's boldest and most enigmatic author. And, so, <laughs> and it's uh, three guys who thought they'd put their creative intelligence together and invent this character and write under this pseudonym. But I think it's pretty cool, don't you? 
I do think that's cool. I think it's given me an idea, given that we've got a guest soon to be introduced, that maybe we three should do the same thing. Yeah, well, well, look, let's get straight to that, to the guest. And look, this is a guest episode this week. And look, as always, we're in for an absolute treat. This week's guest is a creative and design powerhouse. She's on a mission to bring more creativity into both education and the greater world. She sits at the intersection of art and design, advertising, visual storytelling and inspiration. She's been headhunted more times than Mad Men's Don Draper and in a former role travelled to 35 countries to oversee the on-ground PR and be the point of contact for some very famous DJs that headlined the platform she was working for, including Paul Oakenfold, Tiesto and Pete Tong. Now, this sounds like my uh, dream job, but please, Tanya Chua, welcome to the Occupational Philosophers. Thank you. Hi, Simon. And thank you for the amazing introduction. And hi, John. And Tanya, maybe just leading off for myself and Simon's just a curious eye this week. What's uh, what's caught your eye this week? Yeah, I've been getting really interested by NFTs. And I've noticed how some collectors have been buying billboards in Times Square to show off their NFTs. And I think that's just amazing to have digital art in Times Square and just something completely non-commercial and brought into such a huge audience, such a prime location um, that caught my eye. I thought it was really inspiring. Gosh, that's uh, you could imagine, yeah, that just taking hold, that kind of trend, couldn't you? And there's so so much opportunity for it. With all those those digital screens, yeah, London, hopefully next. John and I were trying to explain NFTs last week, and I've said I've read a lot about it. It's like blockchain. Uh, I've read a lot, but I don't quite understand it yet, but I know it's very good for artists from what I've read. Yeah, disruptive, mm-hmm. transformational, and actually not. Once you start doing it, it's it's not that difficult to set up. So I've set up already, set up a site, and looking at buying some some pieces. It's really fun. It's a whole new new world, and it's really at the really exciting time right now. Now, how would you describe an NFT? From the the I guess the one maybe is the purchaser. What do you purchase and Number two, actually, that might be best. If you're the artist, what do you create? It's This is allowing artists to sell their work and always receive money for it, even when it's sold from person to person to person, because their name is on the blockchain forever. So that in the, and also it's allowing them to sell digital art. It could be GIFs, it could be short animations, it can just be a, a static piece. But it's and allowing them to do that quite quickly and reach a huge audience. So I've already seen many of the incredibly talented digital artists I've worked with are now doing NFTs. That is their focus, and they're being able to monetize in a way that they've never been able to before. Mm-hmm. And which is one of the great things or one of the great disappointments if you're an artist and you sold something when you were young for uh, exactly. you know, 50 quid just to get a bit of dosh and, and put some food on the table. Ten years later, 50 million quid and you get none of that. But the person who bought it off you, they get their money. Oh, well, that's that's clear. That I, I understand that's probably the best explanation I've got. So, yeah, thank yeah. you for that. Where are you in the world today? We have people listening from all over the world. Where are Singapore. you? Singapore. Beautiful, hot Singapore. Okay, don't rub it in. (laughs) As I sit here in grey, dreary, drizzly south of England. (laughs) And 
Sorry, Tanya, how would you describe what you do? I sort of gave you a bit of a, a big intro. How would you describe in your words? I think uh, you said it perfectly. I really work at the intersection of quite a lot of industries. So design, education, technology, to create ways for people from school kids right up to corporates to build creative thinking muscles. The driving force behind what I do is called creativity with a conscience. And do you want to expand a little bit more on that when you say creativity with a conscience? What does that look like or sound like or feel like? So I've been in the advertising and creative agency world for for about 20 years. And it's what you would call commercial creativity, where you have to come up with ideas and solutions for clients. So creativity is really what we sell, but we being creative in order to sell a product or a service. So we thought to ourselves, what if we could use those skills? Because, you know, advertising is known for amazing visual communication. The whole point of advertising is that it stops you and arrests you and hopefully sells something to you or persuades you to behave in a different way. And we said to ourselves, what if we could do that, but do it for good instead of trying to sell something? What if we could tackle some of those really difficult topics like global warming or fake news or internet safety and use creativity on those topics? So that's really where where we're coming from. That's that idea, isn't it? That you actually can say, can we use creativity to visually tell stories, to persuade, to influence? You've got a particular sort of focus around next generation there's a kind of eight to 14 year olds type thing where you want to nurture that creative thought and critical thinking presumably though you could you could expand what you've just described there and just say look we could grab hold of this and use it for anyone to actually get big issues out there and have them grasp these issues in a better way than maybe they currently are Definitely. I think we started off thinking about who needs this the most. And we really felt that it was school kids. School kids was a good place to start because the topics that we're tackling, you know, are not necessarily being taught in schools or if they are, they might be just not taught in in a huge amount of detail. So that's where we started. But because we have a visual approach and we use very, um, we don't use a kiddish visual language at all. In fact, our illustrators, when we brief them, we tell them to be sensitive that it's for children, means no, no drugs, no sex, no nudity, but it can be appreciated and enjoyed by any age. And that's the, it's kind of like, you know, watching a Pixar movie. Your kids will love it. You'll love it as well. Or even Lego. We want it to be some, you know, timeless like that in terms of, of how it will connect with you as a human being, whether you're a kid or a teenager or an adult. I think you need to uh, get some digital space near COP26, Tanya. Yeah, yeah. Well, it looks like it's, uh, there's a lot going on. Tell some stories up there. Mm. And one that whole piece around what connects with kids also connects with adults. There's a a big theory around if a six-year-old can't understand it, don't use it in your presentation, no matter how old you are. And I also, when I worked at the National Gallery in England, I used to give talks and all the artworks to school kids, but then you'd also do adults, and often you might have visiting dignitaries and all this type of stuff, and people would say, oh, you know, change your approach, change your style, exactly the same story, exactly the same questions, and no different at all. And uh, they responded in exactly the same way, even though they said, oh, yes, I'll tailor my approach. Same thing worked each time. 
So true. And I, I also find, funnily enough, when I do creative thinking workshops, uh, the kids respond better because they don't have all those blockages that adults might have. They're more brave in what they say. They're not afraid to look stupid. Not all of them, but but quite a large pool. Whereas adults, they really can take quite a long time to warm up because they're afraid to say something that might make them look stupid. So Tanya, we've got a little bit of a quick fire round to find out a little bit more about you, maybe something of your journey to where you are today. And maybe it, it might be things that spring from early childhood, but right through your journey through education as well. But what, what are some big experiences maybe that you can draw out that have taken you to where you are today that might have formed you and had you um, follow your creative flow and, and direction that you have? I think I've always had a very multicultural upbringing because my parents are born in France. So they sent me to a French school in London at the French Lycée. I don't know if you know it. It's quite a well-known school. It's the, one of the only schools without a uniform in the centre of London and everyone speaks French. So people kind of <laughs> smile when they think about this school. So I went there and it's, it was a really multicultural school. And I then got to spend a year in Paris at university. And that was really living in a different city at a young age was really quite life-changing for me and then I got that job that that Simon talked about earlier which was a dream job but I got to travel around the world I went to 35 countries and this was in my early 20s so all that really led to a love of traveling and discovering new places so coming to Singapore was very I was actually going to go to Australia initially and I got an offer in Singapore and it was very I didn't even have to hesitate for a minute (laughs) I have to say does that first job of uh going around 35 countries with Paul Oakenfold, Siesta and, and Pete Tong sound as crazy as it might do. Do you know <laughs> my biggest it? regret I, that I didn't, <laughs> I didn't record a podcast or I didn't capture it um, in some way <laughs> because it was definitely uh, lots of stories. And um, I, I mean, I still could, I suppose, but yeah, it was, I mean, I was pretty professional all the time, but I did certainly <laughs> uh, witness some, some things. It was eye opening put it that way. <laughs> and just that's just on book. that where was the, the where was the most interesting place you had a dance party um beirut was pretty amazing buenos aires those were some of uh rio but vietnam and this is 20 years ago vietnam was you know it was it was the first time they'd had a an international dj perform there uh, uh chengdu in china which is the the panda capital so we were bringing DJs to all the continents, the places that had never never had a DJ, including Europe and, and Australia and New Zealand and all that. But those countries were quite amazing. Yeah, and I can imagine the Vietnam one because I was in Vietnam for three months in 2000. Yeah. And I was shocked when people said there were hotels there a few years later. I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> it was almost nothing. Oh, just backpackers hostels then, which was great. So um, I can imagine it was a, a great time. Now, a question. Three words when you're at your French school in London, three words that described you. Yeah, I was uh, quite hardworking, ambitious and competitive. Was that in your 360 feedback report? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Not the competitive part. And I think competitive is just upon self-reflection. But that's interesting, isn't it? That, again, one of the themes that we keep coming back to is just that persistence and effort and Mm -hmm. hard work is quite a key part of the creative process or where you have people sort of trying to do things creative things create stuff it's uh, it keeps coming back to that a lot of time would you say son 
Yeah, that's it's a key theme. Like you, even like creativity, uh, we're all creative. If you're born, you are creative. But that craft comes from hard work, like anything else. Hundred percent. But I, I yeah. find a lot yeah. of really creative people are not necessarily very good at school. Um, naturally, very very creative people are not. You know, they don't thrive on those subjects that you have to get right, like maths and and English and science, where there are right and wrong answers. I think they mm. they struggle with that. Were there particular people along the way? that inspired you or you had a moment where that someone said something or you had a, a period of teaching or mentoring with someone that really did then yeah. inspire you for to do things differently? Definitely. I wouldn't say I was a very, uh, I was on a creative path, actually. I mean, I was working with the DJs and things, but I wouldn't, I didn't consider myself a, a massively creative person until I came to Singapore and I, I got here for Tiger Beer and I was studying a global program for them. And we were, we, the idea was to find emerging um, artists in Asia and partner them up with artists from the West. And we needed someone to, a creative director to help front that. And someone said, there's this guy who's from Ogilvy, but who wanted to get out of advertising ages ago. He's, he knows all the artists everywhere. And so he's my co-founder and I've been working with him ever since. And I have to say he's a huge, he was a huge influence on me because he's a professional artist himself, but creative and art director background. And he re- he was the one who introduced me to this world of creativity and all the creatives that and the artists that we've been working with. Is there someone who you see out and about now or something that inspires you now? Oh God, I'm inspired um, all the time. Because I work, I've done my own brand, which is essentially visualizing ideas. And I work with a huge network that I've been building over the years. And I'm inspired probably daily by those creators that I work with, by the work that they do. You know, they, we give them a brief and they'll send a sketch. And wow, we're all blown away. And by my team. Yeah, I, I, inspiration is part of my, of my life. I mean, I love what I do. And I think I've now graduated to becoming a creative person who's living a creative life because every day I'm pretty much enjoying it. I was taken by that as well. The unusual network is what has has formed, isn't it? uh, Which sounds like it should be a new Netflix superhero series. (laughs) The the unusual network. (laughs) But it did have me think of uh, one of those other things that networks collaboration coming together with different Mm. people different ideas or whatever that seems to be quite something of the lifeblood of creativity as well where you have those environments things flourish and blossom as you get people coming together would you and it's fun isn't it collaboration is fun Definitely. I mean, we whenever we we tackle a topic for AYA, whether it's internet safety or fake news, or we will bring in about 20 to 30 different collaborators from all over the world, um, different ages, different nationalities, etc. And they will bring their unique perspective to the table. And the result will be a collection of perspectives on these topics. And it's really um, can be very eye opening. Tanya, you have the unusual network, but you should have the unusual podcast. And just reading through what this is about, it's an ongoing exploration into the elusive force that is creativity. And your podcast aims to, amongst other things, demystify creativity through casual, authentic conversations with some of the world's most creative individuals. 
and I have taken a listen in on some of these, and so some great episodes to delve into. But what there must be things that have started to connect for you now as you talk to all these people. You start to see themes and patterns emerge. What are the things that you might see are mm. themes that connect people? Things that stand out that maybe have surprised you, but or and as well maybe you expected. Well, what's interesting is I talked to maybe three different groups of people. Il- il- professional illustrators, the ones that I work with for my network, who who are able to capture ideas in in rich digital drawings. Then also creative directors who run who are in ad agencies, and finally creative technologists who are like metaverse builders, creative programmers. So they're actually quite different in their background, but there are some definitely some traits that unite them. Um, they're extremely observant. They genuinely love what they do. They're very happy people. It's fantastic to talk to them. I mean, I started the podcast only after having interviewed a lot of them for a thesis I was writing, and I felt this had to be captured. I think a lot of them are—they're uh, quite established in their careers, and they've—they've know life before the internet, and they've got a very clear position on how they generate ideas, and it tends to be very much offline. And then how they use technology to visualize their ideas, and I thought that was really interesting because I've heard that a lot of young people struggle with coming up with ideas. A lot of kids they will go straight to Google and go there for ideas. Some of the ones there you talked about creative leadership or creative leaders. I, I particularly pulled out Andy Grant, John Bergerman, and Charles Wigley, mm. which I thought were really interesting ones to listen to. Are there? You mentioned uh, some behaviours there. Were there particular values that they had as well that you would say united them? I mean, they build creativity as part of the culture of their organisations and they let people explore and, and make mistakes. And I thought that was amazing and that is creative leadership and that's how you get the best out of people in your company. They're not obsessed with work. They have their things on the side, their side hustles that they do that are their creative outlets. I thought that was really interesting, like photographer or writer or, you know, so and they encourage that in their team. Yeah, is that that's so almost akin to the uh, what we see in a lot of the earlier episodes as well. We've explored artists like Michelangelo, Leonardo. They're polymaths, aren't they? They, they have that abilities to draw on things that they're interested in that could be, again, in very diverse fields. And it's that the way they bring those together and find ways to connect them or intersections between them that can create some something magical. And did you, did you find something there with how they their side hustles actually drove their work hustle? Because I've always, part of the work that I do is like if you're, you do all these creative things at home, which often you will not acknowledge as creative, but you've got this little thing that which you keep secret and but then you come to work and you bring on a different persona. But for me, those intersections, like you're working out the same brain, aren't you? Like they're sort of there, they feed off each other. Was that something which came through with their I work? Thought, I thought it was very interesting in the interview with Andy Grant, who's a creative, uh, head of creative at uh, TBWA. He, uh, he was telling me that during COVID, he got all his team to, well, everyone was working remotely and they kind of all shared what their special strengths were, like making movies or editing or photography. And then he realized that instead of hiring a photographer or an edit studio, why not get those individuals to do the work? They made an entire advert for IKEA from their own homes. 
and the the staff did the whole thing. And I thought, wow, that is amazing. So the side hustles mm. became the tools for the agency to create instead of having to pay production houses. Now, it probably leads on to this. Like we often, John and I, the podcast is around being uh, curious. A big part of what we talk about is being curious and looking at the world with your eyes wide open or what I call traveler's eyes. Um, from all your discussions, how do, let's say creative people, we say creative people, people who make a living from their creativity, how do they see the world? And the follow-up question, what are some habits we can build on with the way they look at the world? I think they see the world full of possibilities. Some of the habits will be, well, like I mentioned earlier, their own side hustles. I think I've noticed how some people actually, you can study creative thinking and creativity and from there learn tactics that you can put into place in a company to draw out the creativity of individuals. And they've got the kind of bravery to do that and to challenge the status quo. To what degree have you sort of mused on the idea of how creativity can actually tackle, help us tackle some really big world problems. I mentioned COP26 early on, which to, I think most people may know was, was obviously the, the latest climate conference taking place in Glasgow, but big problems like that. How can creativity add to that process, to that conversation? Hmm. Well, first of all, to solve those problems, there is not just one method. There's no right answer. They're massively complex problems that have to be addressed using creative and critical thinking. So without those thinking skills in the first place, you're not going to be able to address those problems. Secondly, I think they're so complicated and complex that actually a lot of us don't really necessarily understand it or see how things are connected, but we somehow feel that we should. So starting from the basics, number one, imparting, educating about the facts, about those problems, deconstructing them and trying to sort of, uh, you can't simplify them, but make people understand how things are interconnected would be one thing. And then number two, developing their thinking skills at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I find that those topics are actually fantastic topics to develop thinking skills about those topics, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, I was just thinking, as you say that, just the idea of, I wonder how those conversations are going. I wonder how those discussions are held and facilitated. And I wonder to what degree some of those processes and ideas that you have could find a place there. You say, look, let's look at it like this. Here's a process we could follow that may allow us to deconstruct something immensely complex and actually mm -hmm. help us make sense of it. So then we can have a discussion about what to do next and how to solve it for example, which brings you to the next one, which is, okay, let's employ our critical thinking skills. Now we understand the problem. Right, exactly. And also it's about discussion. And I think those kind of topics, it can't be just someone teaching. It can't be a teacher imparting information to the students. It's got to be a two-way conversation because you'll find that people have got opinions, that the kids have got knowledge that the teachers don't even have themselves. And that's when it starts to get really interesting when you can kind of uh, have this two-way conversation. And on this piece about sort of asking greater questions and not understanding the problem fully, is it okay to get to the end of that discussion and say, look, we still don't understand the problem or do we, we're further along than we were? Like how important is it to know everything? 
Yeah, you're That's not a shit know. question. Sorry. No, <laughs> <laughs> you want me to we might keep it. We no, might keep, keep it going. In. Keep going. Yeah, keep yeah. going. No, but that's the actually. No, actually, to be fair, when I take those topics, I do sometimes get overwhelmed myself and think, "Wow, it's impossible to reach the end here." But I think it doesn't matter because it goes back to curiosity. If you can start an interest in something, spark an interest in anyone in any topic. And that's already a good thing because it's curiosity. And that, that, you know, some people are saying people are getting less curious, definitely kids. So, and on the second thing I've noticed is we take these topics like internet safety and fake news and sustainability and healthy eating and financial literacy. And the funny thing is you eventually realize that they are all interlinked. Oh, and mental health. They are all completely linked. It's like this complex web, you know, you know what it's like. The more you use your device, that will impact your mental health, which will impact your physical health, which is then related to what you're eating. And it's this massive, it's just the complexities of the day of the sort of modern times. You're going to have to draw a massive, massive visual representation of this, Tanya. We're going to need those billboards in Times Square again to present it. I'm, I can't, <laughs> I'm not good at that kind of thing. I think Simon might be better. I've seen some people have a go at it. And it's, it is it's systems thinking. Hey, Tanya, it's time for one of our thought experiments, which is, uh, as we always say, a fancy word for a game, but we're trying to make it sound as if it's more deep philosophical thought that's happening here. So, look, after reading that you're a part time lecturer at Hyper Island, is that right? In Singapore, is that correct? Um, not at Hyper Island. Yeah. I have done part time lecturing at universities here. Yeah, that's so, where I did I my saw master. Hyper I did my oh, master, master there. Okay. Yeah, the yeah. Hyper as soon as I read it, it just sounded really futuristic and sounded like the kind of place uh, a Bond villain would, you know, keep their lair or something like that and have loads of people in orange boiler suits running around sort of doing their bidding. And so it uh, has led me to our first thought experiment, which is Bond lair or university. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a series of islands and you're going to tell me whether they have a university on them, such as Hyper Island. <laughs> Or a Bond villain's lair, okay? Okay. So, I'm going to start slow here. Rhode Island. Bond lair or university? University. It is correct. It is Rhode Island University. Well done. Oh, I didn't know uh, this, was, this was a true or false. <laughs> oh, okay, there's a right answer here. I thought it was That's the right answer. answer. Right answers are everything in this stuff. That's uh, my yeah, this, is, this, is serious, yeah. this is serious stuff. Come on, this is <laughs> we do have a massive chart of all our guests' scores over time. So, but you're doing okay. That's that's one. Right. The fact you've got okay, one right, one is, you're, you're ahead of many. So, um, the next one, Crab Key <laughs> Island, Bondlair or University? Bondlair, Lair. Well, two out of two. They're correct, and that's Lucky. from uh, Doctor No. Well done. Well done. Right, cool. <laughs> was that a guess or was that, was it, it was, that I think it was your intuitive. Deep, deep well of Bond knowledge? It, correct. I love Bond. Ah, very good. We won't discuss the latest movie, by the way. Loved it. <laughs> okay, next one is uh, Corpus Christi Island. University. Oh, that is correct. It's the Texas A&M university the a&m standing for agricultural and mechanical right yeah 
Well done. Yes. All right. Your next one, Oahu Island. You, there's your university there. Okay. Right? Well done. Four out yeah. of four. Correct. That's All right. Hawaii. It's Brigham, yeah. Brigham Young University. Mm. Well, John, this could be the only time that someone's ever got five out of five, and I'm, I'm <laughs> shocked, don't, actually. Well, I'm not shocked. Don't the... tempt, let's not tempt fate here. Okay, okay. The last one. Hashima Island. Bond Lair. You're just playing the odds now, aren't you? <laughs> that is correct. It Yay! is a Bond villain's lair. It's cool. from Skyfall, and the villain was Raoul Silver, played by was it Javier uh, Bardem? He was the villain. Oh, I liked it was him. this abandoned yeah. mining colony yeah. island yeah. thing. It looked awesome, fantastic. It was quite, yeah. it was quite incredible. So yes, yeah. that was from Skyfall. So well done. Five out of five on Bond Lair or University. That was fun. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Now, Tanya, I'm passionate about visual learning and visual literacy and use it a huge amount in my work. And I know it's a big part of the AR network, which I'd like you to talk about a little bit more. But what are the benefits of visual learning and how can we foster more visual learning I guess, in our schools? Mm-hmm. But also what could workplaces do as well to tie into this way that our brain loves yeah. to think? Well, so in terms of the benefits, um, visual literacy has been shown in in academic papers and in numerous studies that it can help develop critical and creative thinking. So it's got that kind of um, academic stamp to it in the first place. And I, I think you need that with teachers. The second thing is, I think, by combining, by using these hot topics, as we call them, which is the sustainability, these complex topics, and using a visual literacy approach to tackle them, we're creating uh, really valuable materials for educators to unleash discussions in the classrooms. But I've also noticed that these same materials can be used in a corporate environment to encourage people to think out. I don't like saying think out the box too much, but I can't think of another expression to mean that. I think when you're working in a company day in, day out, or when you're even in a school, in any environment where you're in the same environment with the same people day in, day out, it must be extremely difficult to come up with fresh ideas and maybe you're not even, maybe that's not even encouraged or celebrated. And what I love about visual learning and visual literacy is you can solve big problems in a very short amount of time. And I'll often, I'll spend a couple of hours with people in a workshop and the drawing is the discussion. It's not someone silently drawing the discussion in the, in the corner of the room. That drawing is a discussion. So by looking at that, they're going, up and pointing and oh that that and, that and this here oh, it's not over here it's over there and you can literally squeeze I think sometimes like a two-week project into about five hours of back and forth and different you know emails and so the speed of which our mind embraces visual learning and visual understanding that's the thing which uh, I guess has blown me away like always you always know our brain loves pictures but bang what a breakthrough it is when we use it. Mm. Is that what you meant as well, Tanya? You said a few moments ago about unleashing discussion, mm. that which is a real powerful word. For you, that was the idea that visual learning allows us to suddenly have people spark into life and sort of, as Simon's saying there, start to go, that's not right. That doesn't connect in that way. That doesn't present the problem in the right way. We need to draw it like this. Or, 
Okay, what I do is I use these, um, I, I get these images done by my creator, my creator, uh, my creator network, my unusual network of illustrators, and we visualize topics like internet safe internet or anxiety and we we then present these rich illustrations that are very thought-provoking and we see how people react and get them to talk about what they see and what you'll realize is that not everyone sees the same thing out of an image and what they see when they start sharing they will realize that we have our own perspective we have our own biases we have our own assumptions and you can really, and, and it's from those discussions that you can learn uh, about the topic and also from each other. And it's often hard to say, read this presentation, what do you see? Like it's a different mental framework, isn't it? Because you, you don't see, you go to a completely different modality in your brain. So that visual learning is a way to get that out. And now visual learning and visual literacy, what, what's the difference? Like how, how can we develop visual literacy? For I guess for school kids and for corporate people as well. So visual literacy is the act of deconstructing and understanding an image or a piece of art or an illustration or an advert, anything visual. And it's a sort of a natural human instinct to want to understand what an image is saying. But it's not taught at all in schools because schools favour the written word over the visual and always have done. But we live in a highly visual world and studies are showing that that kids believe what they see online. Uh, They see an image, it could be fake, it could be manipulated, it could be a deep fake and they think it's real. So you have to start teaching kids to be visually literate. And there are some amazing spokespeople on this topic and a great TED talk on it as well by Bill Kennedy, which I really recommend, about the importance of teaching visual literacy. But I found also, like I was saying, it it also helps develop creative and critical thinking. I was going to say, um, as you were saying that, Tanya, it just had me that you're absolutely right. It's like challenging what we read. So we have, you know, this ability to siphon out truth from fake news, etc., and then challenge what they see. And just to really look at it and say, okay, what's going on here? Is this real, what I'm looking at? In the same way that we we would have them sort of challenge a news story, for example. Exactly. So, Tanya, we're a not-so-serious business podcast. We always like to spend some time thinking around individuals, teams, and leaders. How do we bring more creativity and curiosity and visual literacy, visual learning, some of the great things we're talking about today into their lives? So, look, I'll just I'll rephrase that question. Sitting, listening at home, how can you bring more creativity and curiosity into our lives, which we know these not skills, we always say skills of the future, but skills of the now because we know the world around us is changing rapidly and automation is taking away the repeatable and the mundane. So creativity has never been more important. How do we bring more of that into our life? If just you're sitting there at home thinking, hmm, what can I do? I think um, there's many. I think we were talking earlier about the idea of being in a routine and doing the same thing every single day. And that can be quite detrimental to creative thinking. So some of the there are really small things you can do, like go to work 
a different route or not look at your phone the entire journey and just spend time observing people around you or your environment or, you know, those are really small things. Put your phone away for a whole weekend. Read a book that's completely different to what you would usually read. Definitely absorb culture go to art museums, go to galleries, learn about the artists, don't be intimidated by art. Those would be some of my top ones. Watch a film from a completely different type that you would usually watch. That would be, I'm going to go watch a bit of French art house. Yes. <laughs> and yeah, that's it. You need to do that. I have to say, one of my happy places, Tanya, I don't know if you find this, maybe you as well, Simon, is... Um, I love museum shops or art gallery shops. You know where you come through the gallery? Yeah. And then you get to the shop. Me too. And there's just all these wonderfully beautiful, obviously there's the art from the gallery itself framed, ready for you to take home. But then you always get these books and things on the side with wonderful ideas and just visual, amazing, magical ideas that you just look at and you go, ah, that connects to something I'm thinking about over here. Yes. And I, I suddenly sort of see the artwork of the, the Metro, you know, the underground art deco book of, of the train system in London in 1930. And I suddenly saw it connect to a problem I was trying to wrestle with at work. It was a way I could present the problem at work. And I love that those moments where I suddenly get something from there comes right into something that's just chewing over in my head. Do you, do you, uh, there you go. Well, that's exactly. Happy place. Art gallery shops. Yeah. When I go back to London, I always go to the Tate Modern, the National Gallery. And you're absolutely right. The shops and the books that they get from those independent publishers. Thank God that they still oh. have those books and people are still making them. And that's exactly right. And you, you will find solutions to problems within those things where that you d- didn't expect. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I've used this in a similar way that you've done, John. Once I had to get in, a, I guess, a proposal, and I've been trying to connect to the client for two weeks, you know, we'd missed each other. Then eventually after a couple of weeks, she said, oh, this is, I need it by tomorrow. And I'm like, oh, God, here we go. But, like, absolutely no ideas for this piece. So I, in the, you've been to our little town where we live, there's lots of those sort of gift shops and interesting things in the window. So I literally went for a walk around the street and just wrote down everything that I saw, was really observant in all the windows, there's patterns and textures, and then went back and sat down, and that gave me the idea for the proposal, which we won. And I I designed a create-your-own-festival experience for this company, but that came from nowhere. There was nothing there until I started to do that same thing, just look, observe, take ideas in. And look, yeah, I can't say it would work every time, but it was just a really, at that time, a really useful way for getting my brain to think differently. Yeah, interesting. And notice how all our examples are not about going on Google and trying to find the answer online. You're getting that information presented in the same way as well, like it's through the same, I don't know, portal, or the sensory portal, That's, is that the right thing to say? So, yes, yeah, when you're moving and thinking and different senses happening at once, that's when those ideas start to jump. And that probably takes us to teams, John. What do you think around teams? Yeah, I mean, this is obviously a real area of interest because obviously you work with a lot of teams. Again, thinking about teams, Tanya, how can they, as a team, develop their creative thinking or creative doing, as Simon would say, and also critical thinking skills? How can they do that? How much they, how might they use it to approach problem solving differently, make decisions 
etc what's the thoughts there well my thoughts are is that that is absolutely linked to culture and that it has to be modeled at all levels of a company particularly senior levels secondly i find a lot of companies have problems identifying clearly what the problem is and articulating the problem you can't find a solution without a clear problem i mean i've had clients come to me saying oh we want we want a, a vr solution about this I'm like, huh, but that's just the technology. What, what's your problem? You're giving me a proposed solution, but what is your problem? I don't know if you guys have that. Find client, you know, really, um, it's often very difficult to identify the problem. So that's one thing. Then secondly, it's about generating ideas at all levels of an organization, not just the team. That, you know, right down from the, the accountant lady, the cleaning lady, or whatever your organization is, you've got to try and generate ideas from everyone. I think that is really important. And design thinking is a good method, a good framework, but you absolutely have to know your problem to begin with. Mm. That absolutely chimes with my experience. And in fact, uh, there was a recent project where we got to that moment where I actually found myself quoting Einstein. <laughs> in the meeting always was, good john always you know. good yeah <laughs> and it was one of those moments you know i hope this goes right but i think it was along the lines of you know if einstein said if i have a problem and i had one hour to solve it i would spend 59 minutes identifying the problem or you know i'm paraphrasing here identifying the problem and one minute on the solution and it was that idea just to sit and sit and sit to really get clarity before you rush to solution, which I think is a seems to be a bit of a default in the workplace sometimes with organisation trying to do stuff and solve stuff quickly, 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 and um, they miss something in that uh, desire. I think. Well, it's that tick box piece that we have at the end of the day. We want to tick things off our list and we want to solve that problem as quickly as we can and move on to the next thing. And I was working with some principles, like literally around design thinking and how to solve some of those bigger problems. And they sort of we had to go through this, well, look, there's different types of problems because they're like, no, we don't need to take the time. We have to solve these problems every day. And like, you know, COVID here at the close of schools in an hour. And, and I said, so there's there's that type of problem solving, but also be aware that sometimes, which we've just said, we just have to sit back and sit in the fact that we we don't know the answer yet. And that's okay. And just coming back to you mentioned in as we were talking about teams there, Todd, you said design thinking, of course, which is kind of familiar to me in the work that I do, and no doubt for, for Simon as well. But to maybe those listening in, design thinking, just just give us your take on that and how it might sit within a team and how it works. Well, design thinking is um, is actually something that's intrinsic to designers, but it's been sort of brought into the workplace uh, not even that recently, but by IDEO, I would say have pioneered. It's like a, a technique for problem solving. And it, it is a way to take you through different stages. And at the beginning, there are some key parts, which is understanding your customers or understanding the people you're trying to impact, um, really empathizing with them, talking to them, and really listening. Those are things that I think a lot of organizations don't get out of their own office enough or their own space to go and talk to the customers and empathize and identify their problems and then so design thinking just takes you through all these different phases and it's a quite a good structure to be used in a in a company but it's not that if your company has never used it before and is a very uh, uncreative environment that you could just use design thinking and suddenly have these amazing solutions it has to be accompanied by a cultural shift 
if this is not a creative organization in the first place, because it's you have to be a creative thinker to be a good design thinker. Yeah, you have to be open to things happening you wouldn't have expected. That's one of the key things and being and also being really curious around what you'll find out, because generally, which we all do, you talk to your clients and your customers, you go, oh, that's different to what I would have thought. But that's okay. That's that's gold there rather than I'm offended because I thought about it in, in the wrong way or that's not right. I've got the right answer. It's being curious enough to um, go, oh, yeah, I, I really enjoy or I'm really open to that insight which is coming back. Exactly, and challenging assumptions like you said and generating many, many ideas to a problem and using techniques such as, you know, putting up all the ideas for people to see and getting people to vote and build on each other's ideas. I think that part of design thinking is really interesting. And on that piece of having uh, plenty of ideas, Seth Godin, who I quote a little bit, but he says, you have to have enough terrible ideas to eventually some of them will be good. So it's just, you know, c- keep them coming. Don't hold it back. And I often talk around, be okay having that culture where you can share the half-baked idea. So like, oh, there's something here. I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'll am not. i put it up there anyway, and then everyone can build on it rather than everyone go, ha, where'd that one come from, dickhead? Or whatever that may be. It's true. <laughs> so, I don't... <laughs> And just as as a note for people listening who may not be physically in the office, there's all those great tools like Mural and Miro, where you can do this virtually, virtual post-its. And I've done it with some companies and it leads to some aha moments. And I do think for people like us and yourself, Simon, sometimes you do need to bring in an external facilitator into an organization to help this process. Because otherwise you are going to be stuck in your ways of doing things. And it if, you know, if the, there are people sat there who are afraid of talking, they may have amazing ideas, and but be too afraid to say them. We had a session facilitated by IDEO as well recently, and they did it very well. They It was a virtual campfire, but they actually delivered a little miniature, like a, a tea light and a little campfire and some <laughs> tea and hot <laughs> chocolate physically <laughs> to all the attendees who then did it virtually. And they had a little virtual campfire and they were using, I think, either a, a mural or mural, one of them. And it worked really well. I think people like to be in their home instead of having to go. And here in Singapore, anyway, you can't have huge groups of people. I like the idea of that blend of physical and virtual yeah. there. So, yes. I love that. And that might have been, John, part of what we and we spoke around getting that sensorial piece moving as well. That's the, if the screen is very blank emotionally, if that makes sense, when you bring those other little bits and pieces. So I think maybe that blend of things to keep those ideas going as well. And, look, I just want to ask around leaders, and I think around we talk, speak around creative leadership and fostering that environment of creativity, but I'm also mindful, you probably hear this a lot in your work as well, how do leaders foster creativity where maybe their bosses, their board might be worried about things being risky or something, like creativity is often outdated as this flighty or, you know, we want, we want solid structured results. Is there... Yeah, how might a leader think around that, that sort of anomaly or the way people frame it? I think if you are a leader and there's someone on the board who's saying, who's talking like that, and that's already a problem I would address. Because to me, the risk is not being creative. The risk is not being creative. Look at all the businesses that have failed or are failing because they're not being creative. They're not challenging the status quo. Look at Kodak, you know. So those leaders who don't see the relevance of creativity, I would address that first of all. There are some amazing books 
podcasts such as yours. Uh, there are ways <laughs> you would need to manage upwards and inspire those that board to see the value first of all. Then we did talk about some so how to nurture creativity within teams. But I think if it is not a value within an organization, it's going to be problematic. It's just going to be a like a Band-Aid type solution. You did mention early, very early on that there's a cultural dimension mm. to all of this, that for this to thrive and flourish in an organization, it needs to be led from the top. It needs to be a value that they hold true. There's a big thing as well, though, that there needs to be trust in the organization and you almost come down to something fundamental sometimes time and again because people need to have an environment where they can feel it's safe to fail or safe to experiment as we might say is that something you recognize as well that psychological safety as they might call it needs to be there as well for then all those other things to come to fruition definitely yeah absolutely key trust um feeling comfortable yeah like you i mean yes and I think you would probably notice with your, your unusual network, there'd be a huge amount of trust between you and your designers and your illustrators and you can send a brief, they'll come back to you with something. If it's not what you thought the first time, you can. it's not the end of the world, if that makes sense, like that just process keeps flowing on. So because I think you do your best work, especially your best creative work when there's a high level of trust because nothing's ever perfect the first time, is it? Definitely. I mean, I've, there are people that we, we don't always commission the same people. We keep, we commission new people who are where there's no really, we don't know each other. We're reaching out to people from halfway across the world, from Singapore to commission them. But I think they see the work that we've done before. They, we've built credibility within this space and that helps a lot. I think that that can create trust in a way as well because we maintain a very high level of professionalism. And I think they see the people that we've worked with before and think, okay, this is clearly a company that can be trusted. So trust doesn't necessarily come from people that you you already work with. It can actually be formed in other ways, if that makes sense. Okay, time for another thought experiment. And because we know you spent a lot of time on the, I guess, on the music scene early in your career, and we've also been speaking about uh, islands as well, we thought we'd call this one Dessert Island Discs. So this is building on the classic Radio 4 Desert Island Discs. But rather than being able to take music and books and that type of thing, we'd like you to choose your favourite desserts. You can only take two to your dessert island and something to keep you creative and something to keep you sane what would they be um two favorite apple <laughs> apple crumble okay yeah Ooh, good english a choice. classic yeah um <laughs> creme brulee all right something a bit more exotic something to keep me sane definitely a book yeah and what was the other one the fourth one something something to keep you creative notepad and pen ah. what about you john dessert well, islands. I... <laughs> so i gotta go for sticky toffee pudding which is not dissimilar to tanya in being a sort of a great british classic i would say that's a good so one quite comfort quite comforting <laughs> then and then the next one that came to mind was a knickerbocker glory which i always just like just because it made me smile every time we we went out we used to go to there used to be a, a fast food place called Wimpy. Was it Wimpy? Oh yeah, really old. I went oh, there. Wimpy again. It was nice. Yeah, that's it. 
Yeah. And they used to do crazy desserts like Brown Derby, which was a donut with a big pile of ice cream on top. But Knickerbocker Glory always used to make us laugh. So that's uh, one of those things that has a nostalgic element to it as well. So I'll take sticky toffee pudding and a Knickerbocker Glory, please. <laughs> and then what was the other one? Uh, keep me creative. It's interesting you said notepad because I kind of consider myself to maybe be more inclined to write. But I actually put down sketchpad. Mm-hmm. I'd actually I'd keep my sketching going because I think I'd quite like that. There'd be lots of things to see on the island, I suppose. Well, for the first couple of weeks, and then I'd get bored and see the same things every time. And what would keep <laughs> you sane, John? What would keep you sane? <laughs> my running shoes. I'd take my running shoes with me so I could run round and round and round the island. How big is it? Uh, we haven't specified, but not that big. <laughs> can we make it a, I don't know, can we make it a 5K loop? If it's 5K, then that'll keep you sane. Yeah, 5K, 5K island. How about you, and Sam? That, and that, I was about to what say, that you? is uh, the end of the dessert island. <laughs> okay, I would take, I would take sticky toffee pudding as well, but the gluten-free version, oh. because I think it's tastier, <laughs> having had it uh, recently. I would, um, speaking of, unusual desserts no i won't go there actually but i would take a uh, a baked cheesecake i would take mm. I think it's very nice i would also take something to uh draw and something to keep me sane i would uh, i'm reading a lot of Irvin welsh at the moment so i would about sort of heroin addicts so i would, <laughs> I would do that because it just made me feel good <laughs> even though i'm not on this island i'm not a junkie <laughs> So, Tanya, this is the closing parts of the show. We've got a rapid fire round now with just some questions here. So I'll kick off. Uh, One thing you couldn't do without in your life at the moment. Um, I'm reading a great book by a Malaysian author um, called The Night Tiger. It's complete escapism. I love it. It's uh, set in 1930s Malaysia because I'm in Singapore. It's kind of relatable. It's really, really good. What's your guilty pleasure at the moment? Uh, it'll be a, some Netflix show, but I've um, I've been watching The Outlaws, which is a BBC BBC show. I, I don't know. I don't know if I should feel guilty about that. I think it's really funny. But I've had some guilty pleasures on Netflix. We're building the Occupational Philosophers Manifesto, mm-hmm. and so that's a, a place that we can capture all the wonderful things that people have learned from their own experiences. So what one thing of all your learning do you think, or quote, might you think we could include on the manigesto? It's fairly simple, but love what you do. Is there a book we should be reading? Uh, I mean, I read a good book not that long ago called Raising Innovators. That was pretty good. Tony Wagner. I enjoyed that. I talked about the, the book, the White Tiger, the Night Tiger book earlier. That one's fiction, one's nonfiction. And a final question here, Tanya. So uh, let's imagine in your twilight years, a long time mm. from now, you're guided into uh, your retirement home and uh, you're led into the lounge with all the other residents sat there. And the nurse guiding you in says, Hello, everyone. Here's Tanya. She is. How would you like to be introduced? Um, she's someone who helped many kids become creatively confident for, for the rest of their lives. Right. Love it. Well, that brings us to the end of our show, Tanya. Thanks so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. And 
as John, as we know, always blows our mind a little with every guest we have on. There's just so much to talk about. But look, just to wrap it up, what are you up to next? Is there something on the horizon next six months, which is pretty exciting? Yeah, so we're doing our anxiety issue of Aya at the moment. And what's exciting is we're going to be accompanying it with a huge multimedia festival at Art Science Museum in Singapore about anxiety uh, called GIF Fest. So that's in March. So that's so look out for that. I caught something of that. I think I saw some of that on the website and it looked, yeah, it looks fascinating. We'll put in the show notes clearly, Simon, about uh, all the different links to Tanya and some of the things she's been talking about today. In that regard, Tanya, where can we find you and connect with you and buy you virtual drinks? I like LinkedIn. You can reach out to me there. That's how I met Simon. That's why we're here today. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. On a little drawing challenge, wasn't it? So that's yeah. <laughs> many moons ago. Well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure. We'll put links to all your um, all your stuff in the show notes. And you have to check out the IR website and the, the mm-hmm. illustrations, uh, absolutely mind-blowing. And even if you think I know nothing about art, you don't need to because you'll just be on this sensory overload with what you see and just ties in so beautifully into this world of visual learning, visual literacy. So, Tanya, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Simon. Yes. Thank you, thank John. You. Enjoy your Friday you Friday much. evenings. That was so fun. Friday morning, Friday evening. Hey, Simon. Another great show with Tanya there. What's been some of the takeaways from what Tanya shared with us? Well, as you can imagine, speaking to Tanya, that this concept of visual literacy and now how we need to improve our visual literacy, engage people with visual literacy, teach people how to understand the world from that point of view, how to understand all the media we're consuming, spot what is fake and what's not. And I think just a really nice thing to add to that because we often think of education oh it's phonics and maths and but this visual literacy way of navigating the world around us i love Mm -hmm. this idea all the creative people she interviewed for her podcast very senior people all had a side hustle so it wasn't (laughs) just work and television or whatever it is they all had something which sparked their imagination outside of work so not only good for your mind i think good for your soul as well and I love this idea of they all had offline they all took their ideas offline so they didn't go to a screen for as their first port of call for inspiration they went elsewhere they went for a walk they picked up a pencil they listened to something they observed they read magazines they were tactile so three gems amongst all of Tanya's goodness what about you well for me the early on was something about just creative thinking creative problem solving is never just one person it's always a quite a collaborative act and i thought obviously that speaks to a lot of the work that we do with teams and alike that as teams come together it's never just one person there's always a team involved more you know coming together and then there was a couple of quotes there was the retirement home quote which i loved which was tidy with somebody who's helped many kids become creatively confident for the rest of their lives because we know that's absolutely key to where all of this starts is building that confidence in children in school in the education system so they come through and and sort of take that into the rest of their lives so that was really inspirational and then another quote was just that whole thing of put aside whatever discomfort you might have as you start to do creative things and realize that the risk is in not being creative and again, that goes to the very heart of this of this show, this podcast. So, yeah, some lovely quotes that I might get some T-shirts printed up with. 
<laughs> or yeah, and, yeah, and uh, the, the merch, the merch will hopefully be out in, in the new year. But I love that piece around <laughs> the risk is not, if that makes sense. The risk is not trying something. And look, yeah. I think you know we're, we're middle-aged men, John. We need to think of your legacy. What's that legacy? Nobody lies on their deathbed saying, "I wish I'd done less stuff." Does that make sense? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for reminding me of my my, my mortality, there, Simon. That was it. <laughs> your great Always hair. Fun. <laughs> I should get the dye bottle out. On that note, John, look, I think a uh, great thing for people to do, head over to our website, occupationalphilosophers.com. You can listen to all our episodes there. You can see the manigesto tree of our guests. You can also read our own manifesto for being a great occupational philosopher. And we're going to put a leaderboard up very soon for our challenges that we have every week with Tanya being right at the top, five out of five. <laughs> on, of course, yeah. On University really, Island. University Island or Bond Lair. Yeah, she knocked it out of the park there. Uh, so, look, that's great. Thanks for listening. In the meantime, stay curious, have fun, make stuff, play more. Speaking of Bond Island and that type of thing, what's your favourite Bond film? Well, my favourite Bond films are probably the ones I had when I was sort of quite young. So Roger Moore was my Bond. Spy Love Me, Moonraker, still one of my favourites because that was very exciting at the time. Lots of people running around in boiler suits serving some evil megalomaniac in a lair. <laughs> so they were my favourites. I'm not saying Roger Moore's the best Bond, 